Hi, folks, and welcome back to what has been called one of the most unusual and inspiring shows on the radio, a show that shines a light on people that are living lives of purpose, passion, and adventure and proves that we can all do it. Yeah, it's called Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. That is Bill Schaefer. And all we ask is this. Give us a few minutes and see for yourself as you'll hear from these renowned experts, best-selling authors, and seemingly ordinary people that are living extraordinary lives. You know, Growing Boulder is a radio show. It's also a TV program, a magazine, and a website, all featuring three secret ingredients. You ready? Hope, inspiration, and possibility. Brought to you today by an herbal pharmacist who's got advice to help you conquer your cravings, and by the first woman ever to reach the rank of admiral in the U.S. Navy, and the iconic actress Lee Grant on why she still struggles to even admit her age. Amazing people, amazing stories. It's time for Growing Bolder. This interview was recorded shortly before the guest passed away. Well, you've heard us say it many times. Age is just a number. We've all said it before, but do we really, do we really believe it? If someone is in their 70s or 80s, can they still be vibrant, productive, creative, dependable? Well, if there are anything like our next guest, they can be all of those things and more, even, Bill, if they're in their 90s. Oh, folks, you're going to like this. He's an Emmy Award-winning actor who made his stage debut at the age of nine. Of course, that was 82 years ago. He did stand-up comedy in the Borscht Belt, did Yiddish theater. By the mid-60s, he was in the original Broadway production of Fiddler on the Roof. But his big breaks in life came years later because, as we learn all the time on Growing Boulder, it is never too late. Let's say hi to Fivish Finkel. How are you, Fivish? I feel wonderful, wonderful. Is it possible to feel wonderful when you're in your 90s? Why not? It seems so... 91. It seems like such a high number. Well, it all depends how you take it. To me, there are no high numbers, low numbers. If you feel well, and especially in my case, I'm very lucky that I'm still working. No, there's no luck. I'm in... still appearing. The phone is still ringing. And it's, it's still ringing because you are five-ish Finkel. Well, and, uh, and once in a while, uh, I, I yell at my agent. We're in a world warrior when I was 40. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's a good lead into this next question because, you know, as Bill mentioned, we, we like to encourage people to believe that it's never too late. It's easy to say no, we need examples like yours. And here's one from you. You were on a TV show called Picket Fences for which you earned an Emmy Award at the age of 72. What did your agent think about that? Oh, they loved it. <laughs> That was a miracle getting that show. I never auditioned for it. And Fiveish, isn't it true that if you would have auditioned, you know, these young guys that write these shows, they'd scratch their head and say, "He's good, but we can't take him. He's over seventy." Well, that would have happened had there been other type of writers. But when you have a David Kelly, he does. At that time, he was the only writer. And, uh, you know, that these agents, the casting agents, they showed him people for that uh, role. He didn't like any one of them. Then he went home, and he had friends, and they, he ordered a film called Q&A. I did that film for City Lamette. I played a lawyer there, a funny lawyer. They started laughing. And all of a sudden, he said, that's the man. He called 20th Century Fox, and they knew who he was talking about. And they called my agent, and the miracle, why am I yelling? And the miracle, in one hour, the deal was made for picket fences. One hour, and I was 70 at the time. Man, you know, you're not yelling, but I'll tell you why you're talking like you are. It's because you've got passion. You're engaged in life, and there's nothing we like to see more than people in their 90s that have passion. Um, do you still have as much now, five-ish, as, as you did 20, 30 years ago? 
What? I beg your pardon? Do you still have as much passion for life, for work? Oh, definitely. I still love to eat well. I'm not a gourmet, you know, but I love to eat well, and I love to read well. You know, I'm doing fine. I outlived four doctors. What's wrong? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny, Five-ish. Many times, child actors never stick with it as they grow older. Not only did you start at the age of nine, but you're still at it at the age of 91. Well, it was a different thing. At the age of nine, <clears throat> that was uh, the Yiddish theater. It was a big industry at that time. And I stayed with it till I was 43. And then I went into the American theater when Jerome Zerobin's office called if I would like to do the first national company of Fiddler on the Roof. I leaped. I didn't care about anything. I leaped to do it, and I did it, and I was not sorry. You did it. You did it well. You became renowned for it, but it ended when you were 52, and after the success you had there, you must have had a million other offers right away. Oh, many, uh, you know, offers. I I did a, a show in New York called Little Shop of Horrors. I did it for five years. I never leave a hit. <laughs> I never, why should I? That's a good motto. And then uh, I did uh, for Joe Papp, the Shakespeare Festival, I did a play called Cafe Clown, whereby I got uh, OBs and Schmobies <laughs> and a lot of stuff that I got awards for that. Yeah, and I w- besides that... Uh, I, I did a few films, too. You know, Fivish, I was watching when you got the schmoby. It was very emotional. You know, it, it, it's, it, it, isn't it too bad that the not only did the Yiddish theater disappear, the entire language has nearly disappeared? Which not is, at least. It, no, no, no. It didn't disappear. And it's a Shonda. It's moved to Miami. It's a Shonda because it's such a colorful language. It's a beautiful language. And uh, I did a review... Two years ago, at the uh, college, the Borach College, called Fivish Finkel Live, <laughs> you couldn't get a seat. <laughs> and uh, they loved the Yiddish there. As a matter of fact, I did the soliloquy of Shylock in Yiddish. Give, give us a little taste of that, Fivish. Do you remember? Oh, certainly. Wait, wait, let me get my thought together. Take me a half a second. <laughs> well, hold on. Ayid, mirom gefilm, mirom mahals, mirom nishume, mirom gefil, mirinitzen de zelba doktoidum busienitzt, en he geit arim Antonio, en he mach hoisig fem bier, weil ich bin Ayid, ihr hört? Ladies and gentlemen, you've just tuned in to this episode of Yiddish Theater starring Five Fi- <laughs> Fivish, what what did you say basically? What did you say? The same thing as Shakespeare. Oh. I remember yeah, I, I one critic came out uh be, Pancino is doing it on Broadway. So he wrote to the critic, the last line of the critic, he said, Mr. Pancino, you're very good at Shylock, but can you do it in Yiddish? <laughs> Incredible. Fivish, your mind is sharp as a tack. You're 91 years old. You still have the passion for your craft. What I is know my lyrics, <laughs> and, I, and when I appear in person, which I do a lot of that, thank God, uh, you know, my mind is clear. Thank God. God has been good to me. What What is coming up, Fivish? Are you looking for more work? Or are you okay the way things are? The work comes to me. Thank goodness. I work with my sons. My sons are great musicians. Elliot Finkel and Ian Finkel. 
And what I worked with them. In fact, we did two nightclubs recently, which were, which for me was brand new. We did the hottest room in New York, called Fifty Four Below, with a big success. And uh, then I went to, a month later to Barrington to another club that hired me. It's incredible. Uh, the, the... And we had to turn away people. Tell, tell us, Five-ish, in our final minute or so, what can we learn about life from all that you've seen and all that you've experienced? Well, it's very difficult to predict or give uh, advice. All I can tell people is that you have to, it all depends on your profession. A professional actor in order to be successful, has to learn one big thing besides the others, naturally. You must love your audience. If they love you, they'll love you back five times more. Your producer, he doesn't pay your wages. The audience does. If they don't come to see you, you have no wages. You have no engagements. So that's the main thing you have to learn, which a lot of actors, unfortunately, don't believe in that. Well, here on this program, Five-ish, not only do we love our audience, but we love our guests as well. He is 91, going on 92. He's enjoying his life, his craft, and his career as much as ever. Our thanks to Emmy Award-winning actor Five-ish Finkel. Nachas to you. Up next, fighting back against Parkinson's disease by living life to the fullest. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio. Preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. You're listening to Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton. You know, when John Alexander was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, he pretty much figured it was the end, but instead it was just the beginning. Yeah, and here's why. Because he didn't surrender, folks. To fight off the effects, he actually turned to one of his favorite activities as a kid. He jumped on a bicycle, and much to his surprise, he rode off to an entirely new adventure. John now says he's never felt more involved, more truly alive in his entire life. Now, one of the voices you're going to hear in this story is that of Larry Smith, who's quite an inspiration. Larry's going to be a bit difficult to understand, but don't worry, because the main point here is just letting you hear how much he has to struggle simply to communicate. But for now, here is the ride of their lives. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Paul Guggenheimer, and this is Dakota Midday. Next week, Vermillion's Larry Smith will embark on a 270-mile bike ride from Aberdeen to Vermillion. What makes this trip remarkable is that despite being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease 19 years ago, Larry is riding a three-wheeled recumbent bicycle. Larry Smith never set out to be an inspiration, but as Parkinson's disease continued to steal control of his body, Larry's resolve kept getting stronger. Parkinson's ripped away much of his independence. He knows it's a battle that he will eventually lose, but it's one he will never give in to. It's why he decided to set off on an unlikely quest, riding his recumbent bike across the state of South Dakota. And he challenged anyone with a disability to join him. Has to cite your wheelchairs and your walkers. If you can, join me. And train me for... At the right of your life. Word of Larry's mission spread quickly. His friends rallied in support. Could I get your autograph sometime, Larry? <laughs> A film crew covered it all. The result is an eye-opening, award-winning documentary called Ride with Larry. They captured everything from pedaling on in a cold, driving rain to Larry collapsing in the road and watching him struggle to get right back up, as his wife says he does every single time. I mean, you can avoid falls by staying in a wheelchair. 
But if you do that, what kind of life do you have? It's not a life. John Alexander wants a life too, but now he's not sure what lies ahead. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2010, a surprise that I wasn't expecting. No one in the family has it, and I wasn't uh, anticipating that you know, being, uh, being the case at all. In fact, he wasn't sure what to anticipate. Word of Larry's story reached him all the way in Florida. John also loves to ride. There was that instant connection. But he was drawn to Larry's story for an unsettling reason. Was Larry's life John's future? He couldn't help but wonder if it was only a matter of time before he'd be riding down the very same road. What did he think when he saw Larry? This person is, is fairly far along in, in the condition, and yet he's able to ride a bike. What did that mean to you? That, 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 was, uh, that was a big boost. That was a big inspiration. And I said as soon as I saw the trailer, I've got to be part of that. It was one thing John had been searching for since his diagnosis, and he found it in Larry, that glimmer of hope that no matter how bad things get, if Larry could have a life, so could he. John decided right away to fly out, to get a bike, and be part of the ride with Larry. First days of the ride, and this on the film, still causes waterworks. Um, first day of the film was below 50 degrees, horizontal wind, over 30 mile an hour, mile winds and, and horizontal rain. And uh, he goes, let's ride. And you know, straight into the wind and the rain. And you know, just keeps doing it. And uh, to spend some time, you know, one of my, uh, one of my proudest moments on that, on that ride was, you know, they said, um, have John come up front. And I you know, got to ride the front row. And just Larry and I just out for a ride in spite of it all. And what does that mean to you? It means that we're kind of making our own choices, making our own decisions, and, and taking things into our own hands. It means hanging on to independence, the same thing he first felt as a little boy when he'd climb on his bike and take off down the sidewalk. Independence. It's a memory that's become more cherished, a feeling that's become more precious as his disease slowly peels pieces of that independence away. John likes to go back to those boyhood memories. Just like that old bike, the one he rides today isn't the fanciest one in the neighborhood, but he loves it just the same and spends as much time on the trail as he can. By this time next month, I will have ridden 3,000 miles. So I've ridden across the country 10, 25, 40, 50 miles at a time. And um, you're, you're proving something to your disease, mm -hmm. to your doctors, right. and to yourself. Yeah, to the, doc the doctor said on my last visit, I really think there is something to that exercise thing. Still, John can't help but wonder what is going to happen to him. He shakes so much more now. How bad is it going to get? How big of a burden is he going to become to his wife and kids, the ones he's supposed to be taking care of? Now sometimes my, uh, my son, my daughter, my wife are there for me. And uh, you know, that, that means a lot. That means, makes, it gives me reason to keep going and do the best I can with what I've got. John says he's figured out the best strategy is to focus on the present, to deal with whatever comes one day at a time. His mantra? It's to live well today. You like that, don't you? I love that. Something else is how, in a very strange way, his disease pushed John in directions he never expected. In a way, Parkinson's has given you... It's propelled me to do some other things. It's added to your life. Absolutely. I've gotten to a point where, and people find this hard to believe, that for me, I actually consider Parkinson a blessing and a calling. That um, there's something about this that I was meant to uh, go through an experience and uh, to share with people and to um, get as much knowledge as possible to pass that along to other individuals. That's the attitude that allows people like John Alexander and Larry Smith to live fulfilling and meaningful lives, no matter what kind of challenges we all may face. And why worry about what you don't know Right. when today you can get on your bike. Exactly. And go. And go. And ride.
You know, Mark, just listening to that story, you can't help but wonder when John Alexander looks at Larry Smith, is he seeing his own future? Yeah, that's a good question, Bill. The disease obviously is different for everybody, but it is incurable. And yeah, that's got to be on his mind. But seeing Larry still being able to make a difference in his condition has also got to be an inspiration. Growing bolder means getting all you can out of life, understanding things don't always go as planned. We will all have obstacles and challenges we have to face. Yeah, even the people that seem to be the most successful go through that. And Tony Little really is a great example. He's that infomercial guy for fitness products like the Gazelle. Don't let his endless energy and his big smile fool you, folks. He has had to overcome quite a bit. It's why he's here now to share this edition of Growing Bolder with Tony Little. Hi, I'm Tony Little, entrepreneur, author, infomercial icon, and America's fitness trainer. Do you believe in yourself? Truly believe in yourself? Something happened to me in grade school that I remember to this day, and I will never forget it. I got called into the principal's office, and you know what happened? He looked at me, pointed his finger at my face, and said, you will never amount to anything. Can you imagine being told that by an authority figure? It was devastating, and it messed me up. When people disrespect you to your face, there's one of two ways to go. You can fold tent and wallow, or you can suck it up and decide you're going to prove to everyone, especially yourself, that you are somebody. But I was all alone. There was nobody in my life waiting to hand me the opportunity to do anything. In fact, there was only one person in the world who thought I could be somebody. And that was me. I found my passion in bodybuilding. That's what started me down the road towards all these incredible opportunities. I've been able to take advantage of in my life. That's what allowed me to be where I am. And why? It's all because I believe in me. Well, guess what? I believe in you too. Start believing in yourself. Get out there and make a difference. You can do it. Next, iconic actress Lee Grant on why she still struggles to admit her age. This is Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. You're listening to Growing Boulder with Mark and Bill. Our next guest is an award-winning actress of stage, screen, and television, and a director who's won so many honors for her craft. But perhaps even more impressive is that most all agree that she is a great example of integrity and character and compassion. And she's smoking hot, too, Bill. That never never hurts. hurts. You know, unfortunately, she has had to go through quite a lot in her life. And we're talking about the kind of things that easily could have left her bitter and disillusioned. Hers, folks, truly is is a growing, bolder story of perseverance. You probably remember her best from movies like Shampoo, Defending Your Life, Valley of the Dolls, the TV series Peyton Place. She's written a book about all of her incredible episodes, her amazing life, the many iconic figures she's met along the way. It's a memoir called I Said Yes to Everything. Let's say hello to Miss Lee Grant. Hey, Lee, how are you? I'm so good. What a nice introduction. Thank you. Well, we greatly appreciate your time. And, you know, we don't want to hype our brand too much, but you really could have called your book Growing Bolder because that's what your life has been all about. I mean, you have had to continue to fight for everything you have. Really, yes. And and that is a good title. I like Growing Bolder. Yeah, also Growing Older, but (laughs) Growing Bolder as I grow older, yeah. And, Lee, how has growing older been for you? It's such an adjustment for so many people. Oh, it's hard. 
I, I don't like it. Uh, but it, it, writing this book was part of that because, uh, you know, uh, during the blacklist period, I was blacklisted for 12 years and as an actor, you know, and that was from the time I was 24 till I was 36. And as you guys know, uh, 24 to 36 is a is the prime actor's years, and I couldn't work in film or television. So the the, the problem of age came out of uh, fighting back to get those years back for myself, and it was pretty organic. It, it was not something I thought about. It was just you know a kind of fierce fight to reestablish myself as an actress and work as much as I could. You know, it is amazingly that that a number will sometimes have people prejudge you, and that was really one of the most fascinating parts to me of your entire book. Uh, what called, uh, the the fact that you actually admit now that you lied about your age, oh, uh, w- w- uh, and is it true that you actually got the mayor of Los Angeles to change your driver's license? Yes, but but because I I, I told him that the mistake and mistake was on the license. You know, please help me to go back to my real age, which was five years younger. You know, I didn't tell him the truth. <laughs> you know, but but uh, he was he was a dear guy, and he actually gave us the actor's studio forever, the the building which is in Los Angeles. So he was, a, you know, a pretty darling guy. So so you pulled this off, and, and nobody doubted it because you looked great, you acted great, people wanted to hire you, but you pulled this off, and you reveal in your book until you were 65 when Social Security checks started <laughs> to come in, and your accountant said, what the heck is this? <laughs> well, well, I come into you know, all my Social Security when I was 65, which I never knew, of course. And so um, my financial advisor uh, got the papers and he called my daughter, Dinah. And he said, Dinah, you know, your mom is 65. Uh, Who's going to tell her? And she said, well, I'm not. Call Joey. He'll tell her. And so Joey is my husband who's always been very strong on the money matters. And I was sitting in the bedroom, which I'm talking to you in, on the edge of the bed watching television, and the door suddenly bangs open, and Joey comes in pointing at me and says, you're 65 years old. (laughs) And I fell from the bed to the floor with my hands over my ears saying, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, But I was, and... um, so it was a little adjustment, which I never really made until I wrote the book. You know, I, I didn't go for the senior tickets when I went to the movies. I was, you know, snotty and aloof about that. I paid full ticket, you know, because I wasn't 65. And, um, and now uh, uh, I've faced it. I've written it. Everybody knows. And I still can't say the numbers because... I'm afraid, you know, like the Wicked Witch of the West in, in The Wizard of Oz, when they throw the water on her, and she says, I'm crumping, I'm crumping. Uh, so I can't say the numbers. But, but, but I'm, you know, I'm here for anybody to look up. So. But let me tell you, Lee, you, you've done so many things so well. I mean, you're an unbelievable director with some just great documentary films. You're a quality actress. But the thing that you may be, the best thing that you're doing, Lee, is you're showing us how to go through that part of life. You're showing us how to be vibrant and, and how to connect. Can you talk about a little bit about that, about being in your daughter's play last year and continuing yes. to, to, to just be out there? Yes, uh, uh, Dinah lives on Bainbridge Island in, um, in the state of Washington, and you know she doesn't work in Hollywood anymore. She and her husband left and went to Bainbridge Island. She has three sons, beautiful boys there, my grandkids, and she directs plays there. And you know it was a kind of funny thing because I directed Dinah uh, a lot in uh, when I was directing. And now she was directing, and I had to take directions from her. And it was a little, you know, a little bit sensitive between us. And then I heard the directions she was giving to the other actor in it, and I thought, oh, I'd like that. I'd like to be directed by her. And so, you know, we crossed over 
a kind of bridge between us um, that I didn't even know was there. And it was so sweet and so much fun. She's so talented. So writing the book, and folks, we are talking with the the Oscar-winning actress, Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker, Lee Grant. The the book, by your own admission, was very cathartic and enabled you for the first time uh, to to really admit your age. And as you said a moment ago, I still can't say the numbers. (laughs) You've also said if the Internet was around uh, years ago, you would have been totally hosed. (laughs) It, it, right, it, I've been outed. It is around today. We do know the numbers, so so if it's okay, I'm going to tell everybody. No, 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 don't say it. Don't say don't, it? Don't, don't, don't. All right, I, I won't say okay. it. Uh, look it up. Uh, <laughs> what it, a gent. Well, you know what? We like that because you have so much energy, so much passion. As Bill said, you're so vibrant that those are the kind of messages that, that we need to send to people out there to let them know that when they are as old as you are, they're still young. They're still fabulous because well, you are. that the funny thing that we, we are still young? You know, and, and I don't know whether it has to do with the acting or not, but, but um, there, there, is, there is a young girl inside of us. And, and it stays there no matter how old you, you are, I guess. Well, Lee, we would love to continue this conversation. I know you've got other interviews to do, so can we get you back on one of these days and chat more? Oh, I would love that. I love talking to you. We, yes, of course. We would, too. Folks, do yourself a favor and, and check out her memoir. Uh, it really is fascinating. It's called I Said Yes to Everything by Lee Grant. She's an Oscar-winning actress, an Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker. She's won an Emmy. She was the first-ever Lifetime Achievement Award winner by Women in Film. She owns her own production company. She is someone you need to stay in touch with because it ain't over yet. Thanks, Lee. Up next, she was the first woman to rise to admiral in U.S. Navy history. Her amazing story is next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. This interview was recorded shortly before the guest passed away. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. You know, Bill, everybody has their own way of growing bolder. For some, it's very personal. Others are right out there for all of us to see. Our next guest did it by breaking barriers, by going where no one of her gender had ever gone before. That's amazing, and it's never easy. Yeah, and I think we're going to love this interview. She's a very modest person, which may be why you haven't heard her story. She doesn't like to draw attention to herself, but fortunately, she realizes her incredible journey from nurse to becoming the first female rear admiral in U.S. history is tremendously inspiring. And even today at 94, she's looking back over an amazing career. Let's say hi to Admiral Aline Dirk. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. You can't be 94. You sound young as can be. Well, I work with that. (laughs) (laughs) Tell tell me a, a little bit about your life now at 94. I mean, it doesn't sound like you just sit around at home. Well, uh, I sit around at home a lot more than I used to because I, I don't get around very well anymore. I have to use a walker, and uh, I need help. But other than that, I try to keep abreast of what's going on in the world, and, and I try to keep up with, with all my friends and, and my family. Well, we love talking to someone with the energy and the passion of you. And, you know, you've always lived your life that way. So let, let's go back to, to when you were a nurse, because that really was your pathway into what became, you know, an unprecedented career. World War II had just broken out. Young men in the country enlisted by the hundreds of thousands. What was it that made you decide uh, to get into the military career? And, and maybe more importantly, what did your friends and family think about that? Well, in, in, I graduated in 1941. War was de- I graduated in August, and then war was declared in December. The um, patriotism in the country was 
unprecedented. You know, everybody, the draft was on, uh, people were going every day, people were going into the military. And the same way with the nurses. They they were calling, uh, we were registered with the American Red Cross, and they were calling and saying that they needed us, that uh, they had hospitals that needed to be staffed. And and so I, I just became very enthralled with, with the fact that I, uh, maybe I, I could do something like that, and I was very interested in trying to pursue uh, a different path as far as nursing was concerned. And what was that like? I think that your career took you all over the world. You saw so many different cultures up close. You saw people at the best of times, and you saw them at the worst of times. How did that create your personality? Well, I think you have to be very—I I tried to be very understanding, uh, not to be critical of people, um, and I tried to empathize with the patients. You know, most of the time these these patients were very young men, eighteen to twenty, twenty one years old. They'd been hurt. Uh, they were ill. Uh, they were away from home, and it, it, you tried to make the the atmosphere as far as the hospital room and the hospital area was concerned comfortable for them, and, and that it wasn't something that they they dreaded. They they dreaded being ill, but it wasn't. It, their their recovery was. I think enhanced by the the attitude of the people. You know, we have talked to to a lot of people that have broken some pretty big barriers on this program. And, you know, one common denominator is that it is never easy. And it takes a special kind of person to do that. As Bill mentioned, you were the first ever female rear admiral uh, in 1972. No one had ever achieved that rank before. What was that like? How did that come about? Well, you know, it's kind of a long story, but in 1968, President Johnson at that time had signed a bill that was uh, uh, Title X, which opened up uh, promotions for women in the military. And uh, this uh, particularly, the WAVES, the WACs, the nurses, all of these people now had the opportunity to go, uh, to be promoted to the next level. Up to that point, we had only been able to get to uh, an officer's uh, uh, six category. Uh, so I actually, now they had opened it to seven. So I was not the first person to make um, a flag rank because that they, they, there were two people in the Army who were promoted first. And then the Air Force had two people promoted. And then in 1972, I was promoted. So uh, because of the job... I was the director of the Navy Nurse Corps. Uh, I, I knew that I was being considered, but I really didn't expect that I would be the one who would be selected. How did you find out? In some big ceremony? <laughs> oh, no. I was riding. I was driving from Akron, Ohio, to Detroit, Michigan, and I was on the, on the uh, freeway, and I, I heard it on the radio. <laughs> You're kidding. You found out that you had become this monumental example over the car radio? Yes. That's yes. incredible. And what changed? Obviously, your family had to be very proud. Uh, did men resent that? Did people, that men that, that you were above now in rank, have a problem with that? What was it like being uh, the first? Well, as far as the Navy was concerned, I was the first, and I was a, a, a nurse corps officer. So I really did not have the competition that you would find in the line as far as, like the, the women who were uh, wax and the WAFs. Those people, they were competing with men. I did not have that problem because I was the nurse corps. And so uh, my competition was not for a job that the doctors, that they thought I was going to take over their job. My job at that time was to be, uh, a nurse corps officer and to lead the, the, the women. And then I represented at that time because they did not select a, a line officer at the same time. Then I also represented the women as far as the um, waves were concerned, the women, uh, the line officers in, in the uh, Navy. In a, that was both enlisted and officer. In, in a sentence or so, could, could you kind of summarize what you've learned from your experiences as basically a, a pioneer? It's very hard to summarize in just a few words. Uh, One of the the things I think is very necessary in order to succeed in in some kind of a job like I had was that you have to be 
You have to like what you're doing. You have to be happy. Uh, you may have a lot of trials. You may have a lot of uh, setbacks, but you have to look at the, the bright side. You have to be happy in your job, which then is reflected in what, the, the, what you do to other people. You know what? You are a true American story of inspiration. From registered nurse to rear admiral, the first woman ever to hold that rank. She is delightful. She is the 94-year-old Aline Dirk. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Up next, you know those food cravings that always mess up your diet? We'll tell you how to conquer them. This is Growing Bolder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. These are delicious. Mark, where should I put these donuts? We do this interview here. I'll Keep them over there. Push them I, off to the no, side. I don't eat those. I stick to herbs. Uh, well, I'll, I'll eat those then, so save them for later. Hey, everybody, you're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. How many times have you been all psyched up for a diet? You get off to a great start. You feel like you might actually be over the hump, and then they start. You know, it's those cravings. Got to have some chips. Oh, just a little bit of ice cream. And, hey, is a donut going to kill me? It's always those cravings that end up sending you right off the rails. I think they actually put some sort of chemicals, chemicals. in there, Bill. It's their you, fault. You get addicted to it. Cravings are a big obstacle, but only if you don't know the extremely unusual but very effective ways to get around them. Here's the good news our next guest does. He's known around the country as the herbal pharmacist. He's an expert on the healing powers of vitamins, herbs, and natural supplements. He's not one of those guys against mainstream medicine, but he is convinced that natural health can make a huge difference in your life. Let's see what we can learn from the herbal pharmacist himself, David Foreman. Hey, David, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for the uh, pump-up. You know, you're better than my grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're happy to have you on here. You know, Bill brought it up, so let's talk about cravings. Isn't it natural to want the things we can't have? I mean, why why does it work that way? Well, you know, I think everybody has cravings, and, uh, you know, everybody has cravings for different reasons, so I can't really give you just one thing. You know, uh, I'm a salt guy, so chips and popcorn or, you know, pretzels, those would be things that I would crave, whereas... Some people, it's environmental. You know, you, it's uh, a holiday, so, you, you know, you, you're expecting grandma's apple pie or, you know, uh, or like me, I went to a baseball game last night, and, you know, I'm thinking, all right, well, I, I go to ball games, I need to have a bag of peanuts and a beer. So there's a lot of different reasons we have cravings. You know, it could be a texture thing. It could be the salt-sweet thing um, or even just, you know, special occasions uh, will we'll just trigger. Or you're just seeing that blinking sign of the – Krispy Kreme, <laughs> you know. Hot now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Aren't they, though, aren't cravings sometimes like a message from your body to your brain that maybe you need something you're not getting? Um, in 99.9% of the time, I would say no. Oh. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, people go, oh, the reason I crave chocolate is I heard it's high in magnesium. No, sorry, it's not true. <laughs> Come on, let us dream no. a little, David. <laughs> no, no. See, I'm here just to help people. I'm not telling you you can't do that stuff, but, it, it, you know, moderation is where we should be going on all this. All right, let's do give the, the folks some action items here, David, because, uh, you know, you're really good about that. And, and you've got four unconventional, interesting, but pretty easy things to do that you say we can all do to help combat those cravings. And the first one is eat more nuts. Yeah, um, or as I like to say, get nutty. Um, we, there's a lot of research out there showing that just consuming uh, primarily raw nuts, okay, and we're and we're going to focus even dialed in further to like raw almonds, raw walnuts, and um, there's a lot of good science out there showing that if you consume just a handful of um, say almonds every day, it'll significantly curb your cravings, and it does a couple of things. One is it gives your body a right balance of good fat and good protein, and then those hard to digest carbohydrates, so you get that full feeling. But you also get that balance in energy that's going to carry you a little bit longer throughout the day. So uh, I'm a big – matter of fact, I travel a lot, and people say, how do you not gain weight? 
and I actually have a bag of what we just described, uh, nuts. I make my own trail mix, and I just consume a couple of handfuls when I'm getting on an airplane, and I'm a lot less likely to want those things that aren't good for me. Does it kill you to roast them? No, it's just you lose some of the benefit. When you when you cook something like that, you're going to lose a lot of the good fats. And like with almonds, they're heart healthy until you until you really roast them. So yeah, I mean, I mean, are they are they uh, as good? No. Are they really bad for you roasted? No. And by the way, peanuts don't count. They're really not a nut anyway. They're in the legume family, and they don't really work the same way. And they're not as healthy for you. So peanuts don't count, even though they they're called peanuts. All right. Tip number two. I don't know why you say this, but you say to eat happy beans. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, who out there totally doesn't have a you know some sort of craving for sugar? And um, there's an extract that comes from a white kidney bean, a very specific white kidney bean. And they make an extract that's marketed in health food stores and grocery stores. So you buy it in capsule form. It's called Phase 2. And there was just a huge study done uh, on the effectiveness of Phase 2 in blocking uh, starches from being broken down into sugar and its effect on weight loss. And one of the really awesome things that came out of the study, other than showing, yeah, hey, guess what, Phase 2 helps with uh with weight loss but they also found that the people who use phase two as part of their like everyday diet um it actually curbed their cravings for sweets so if you're one of those people that curbs cravings for sweets and you, you know that you eat a lot of pasta bread bagels if you use phase two along with those the research is showing that you're going to uh, have a, a significantly decreased craving for those sweets Wow, before we get to the next two items that you say can help us combat cravings, quick question. If we were in Colorado, would there be a fifth item on this list? <laughs> I don't know about that curbing cravings. He's, he's not that kind of herbal pharmacist, <laughs> oh, okay. Mark. I just wanted to make yeah, sure. Uh, that's right. I was, just on, I was just on TV in Houston here doing a different type of thing, and my, I had a bowl of hops, and they're like, where'd you come from? I'm like, not Colorado. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number three, sniff some jasmine. What does that mean? Uh, this is for the majority of the women and a few of you men out there. If you crave chocolate, and I'm not being stereotypical, there's science showing that women crave chocolate a lot more than men. Research has shown that just the scent of jasmine will help curb your cravings for chocolate. So if you're one of those people that has an occasional craving, what I recommend is going to your health food store and buying a little bottle of aromatherapy jasmine and just Open it up when you're having that occasional, you know, craving for chocolate, and then it'll usually kill it within 15 minutes. If you're more of a, I crave chocolate throughout the day, which I run into an awful lot of people that are that way, I recommend getting something like a jasmine-scented candle and, uh, you know, burn that either. You know, if you're, you know, stay at home, you burn it at home, or if you're at work, you know, try not to alienate your, your suite mates or whatever, and if you're in one of those offices where you have a lot of people around, you know, not everybody likes jasmine, so... Uh, uh, but, yeah, jasmine will work great for helping curb cravings for chocolate. Right. I sort of get those, but the, another way to fight cravings, you say, is to sleep later. Yeah, this is a this one blows my mind, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. There, there was a study done uh, at Cal Berkeley, and what they found was that people who got six hours or less of sleep a night um, had a, a bigger issue with curbing cravings and even the ability to lose weight or maintain weight. And they, they believe it's because when you get sleep-deprived, it affects your, um, your judgment, your ability. To, it's, I always say if, if people don't know what I'm talking about with, with uh, your judgment or discernment between what's right and wrong, it's as if you've had too many cocktails. You know, your, your ability to, uh, to make proper decisions goes down. And so if you, uh, you, know, if you get a little bit more sleep, they found that your, you know, your ability to sort of with, withstand the, the cravings or not even have cravings will we'll go up, and, and that's what you're really looking for. So eight or more hours has a significant impact in a positive way, six or less. Um, man, not only are you going to have more cravings, but, the, you know, like I just said, you're more likely to gain weight or not be able to lose it. All right, in our, in our last 30, Daniel, can you throw a recommendation out there for any of us that are maybe over 50 and need a little kick or a little energy in the morning and we can get rid of the coffee? Uh, I'm a green tea fan. Uh, green tea is a lot healthier. It still has a little bit of caffeine in it. You brew it for two to three minutes. Um, and uh, the fact that there's caffeine, it'll give you that little bit of a boost. But it, there's also other things in there that provide health benefits for heart and cancer and blood sugar and all that. 
Um, that would probably be the best way to go. Or, or again, go back to that get a better night's sleep. That's why everybody loves this guy. Herbal pharmacist leading the Growing Boulder radio show and useful information per minute. The man has got lots of great tips to help you stay healthy and vital as possible. You'll find it all at herbalpharmacist.com. Well, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. But here's the best thing about Growing Boulder. It never stops. Check us out online at GrowingBoulder.com and see why Growing Boulder is actually one of the most talked about pages on Facebook. And you really do have to check out the Growing Boulder TV show. And you can take a piece of GB home with you, too, by subscribing to Growing Boulder magazine at GrowingBoulder.com. See what a difference it makes to have hope, inspiration, and possibility in your life. Growing Boulder on TV, radio, magazine, and the Internet. Isn't it time you started Growing Boulder? Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon Said I Proud me heated brow Ah, but I was so much older then I'm younger than that now Stance, I aim my hand at the mind.